How can we best improve education for students with disabilities? What should teachers know about cognitive science? How do teachers influence student behavior? Who sends their children to private schools? And how has that changed over time? Those are among the questions posed and answered by the most popular articles in Education Next from the 2018 calendar year. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by the Journal's senior editor, Paul Peterson. Today, Paul and I are going to look back at 2018 through the lens of the articles in Education Next that received the most traffic on our website over the course of the year. You can find a blog post with links to each of the articles we'll discuss and more online at educationnext.org. Paul, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Marty. So we have to start with the article that attracted the most visits to the website by a healthy margin. In that article, Temple University professor Allison Gilmore asked the question, has inclusion gone too far? She's referring, of course, to the education of students with disabilities. And I know this was an article that uh, caught your eye as deserving attention. What do you make of it? Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of this article. Uh, it turns out that I have a son who is uh, a, a extremely disabled uh, and would uh, definitely not be, uh, it would not be beneficial for, for my son to be uh, in a mainstream classroom. He very much needs a, a highly specialized setting. At the same time, I have somebody else that I know very well uh, who has to be mainstreamed. It would be really a very bad situation if he were put in a, a distinctive uh, classroom with uh, students who are in need of special education. So I can understand in a very personal way exactly the two sides to this question. But I, what I like about Allison is that she keeps the focus on, is this good for the child? Is this, what is the best setting for this child? It's not like, if at all possible, put this child into a mainstream. No, you should never think that way. You should always think, what is the best, the best services uh, that are, are going are to work for this particular individual? And unfortunately, I think the law that we have today, it nudges uh, decision makers into looking at, can we mainstream this child? And of course, it's less expensive to mainstream the child. You put them in the mainstream classroom and it becomes less expensive most of the time. And it's not like you shouldn't do that if that's the appropriate setting, but you should always keep your focus on the child and you should not forget the other children uh, that have to receive an education, that deserve an education. And if a child is going to be too disruptive to the learning experience of other children, I think you need to take that into account. So. I think this, this article really uh, puts out on the table something that's not been put on the table often enough. It's bringing a new voice out there that deserves to be heard. And her article generated a lot of response. We see that in the traffic that appeared on our website. We also saw it in a response that we received and later published by two of my colleagues at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Tom Hare and Laura Shifter, and uh, their response entitled, the better question, how can we improve inclusive education, actually ended up ranked number three on our website. So it's fair to say that this topic consumed a lot of the attention of Ednext readers over the past year. Yes, and I think the reply was uh, helpful. It, it did really lay out all the legal framework that within which the special education community operates. Uh, I was not convinced by them that they really did have a study that showed that mainstreaming worked 
because the child who's going to be mainstreamed is necessarily going to be at a higher functioning level than a child who's not mainstream. That's, that's true by definition if the people are doing their job when they're assigning people to a particular setting. So to take my example, if you, if you, uh, you match my son against somebody in a mainstream setting, of course the child in the mainstream setting would be performing it. And even if you control for all kinds of demographic characteristics and background and parental characteristics and so forth, you, you, there's still going to be a massive difference. So I think this, the, these people who are working in special education who are relying on these correlational studies are providing us with misleading information. And so uh, that's a point that I disagree with in uh, Article 3, in the third most interesting article by Laura Shifter and Thomas Hetter, but they really do provide a very uh, substantial accounting of how the system works today, and I I thought that was a, a worthy addition to the journal. Sandwiched between those two articles in the number two slot was Dan Willingham's proposal to reform teacher education. He's a cognitive scientist, and he explains that the preparation that teachers receive in his area of study is too theoretical and, as a result, not particularly useful to teachers once they enter the classroom. He argues that we need to change the content of education degree coursework to focus less on theories of child development and more on concrete scientific observations about how children learn. Things like the fact that practice is key for retention and long-term memory, and only the aspect of an experience that students attend to will be learned. I found his argument intriguing, uh, convincing, worth trying. Uh, I also wondered about its feasibility. His article includes what I think must be the understatement of the year in our journal. He said, the difficulty of persuading professors to change their courses should not be underestimated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that's probably true. Well, one of my favorite articles in the top 20 is the one by Janine Bempachet, who makes the case for quality homework. And, you know, there's a lot of talk out there that homework is something that uh, leads to inequalities in educational opportunity and that uh, parents uh, can actually uh, put their child off on the wrong track And uh, she really provides us with a sound scholarly basis for seeing the great value of what parents have over a very long time done for their children. We know that the most important factor in a child's life is their mother and their father. A child is not going to learn without the help of their mother and their father, or it's going to be very difficult. So schools are extremely important, but homes are all the more important. And the case for quality homework is really one that needs to be voiced again and again, and it's done very well in this particular article. And she does talk about homework largely as a vehicle through which parents can play a role in their children's education. When it's good homework and when parents are supported in supporting their own children in healthy ways, that that's when it's most powerful. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, I also love the piece by uh, Adam Tyner and and, uh, Michael Petrilli, The Case for Holding Students Accountable. This Uh, is an issue you've been hammering on for uh, more than a decade now, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I read it and I just kept saying, yes, yes. 
you know, the, the Europeans and the Canadians do hold their students accountable. They ask them to pass external exams if they're going to uh, get credit for a course in high school. And in the United States, we don't do that very often. There's a little bit of that in some parts of the United States, but on the whole, uh, we just expect students to get their high school diploma if they sit in the seat and, uh, and uh, manage to get through a class and get a grade from their teacher. But these external exams are really something that uh, holds, sets up a standard for teachers and for students and helps to clarify, this is what you're supposed to learn. Oh. This is what I'm supposed to learn. So th th there's something really valuable about having that well-defined. So I, I think that uh, they make a very nice case in, in this piece, the case for holding students accountable. One of the things that caught my eye about the top 20 list was the fact that it included two book reviews. Uh, a bit surprising because those don't usually rise to the top uh, in terms of the attention that they receive. One of them in the number nine slot was a review of The Economist Brian Kaplan's provocative book entitled The Case Against Education. And Mike McPherson, himself an economist, uh, really pushes back against Kaplan's argument that the vast majority of schooling is a wasteful arms race that's useful only for signaling one's talents rather than an authentic improvement in students' human capital. Uh, I guess it's not surprising that readers of Education Next would want to see an argument like Kaplan's uh, be dismissed. But you know, there's a lot of talk out there that the main reason you go to college is to get a credential. And uh, if that were really true, you know, I, I, it, it, we could be living in the, in the land of Oz. And uh, you know, that's not, that's not quite the way it is out there. If you are just getting a credential, you're not getting very much. And the uh, sloppy, a way in which data are analyzed in order to prove that credentials are as good as a genuine learning uh, is, being, uh, is being foisted on the American public. And, and Mike McPherson in this book review does a very fine job of uh, pointing out that, uh, that fact. Beyond the book reviews, there were several research pieces that made the list as well. In the number four slot was uh, Bo Jackson's study of how teachers influence not just test scores, but rather uh, student behaviors that are not captured by test scores, which he looks at by uh, studying their grade point average, their absences and suspensions. And as I think about the contribution of this article, it's telling you that as a parent, if you have the choice between a teacher who you know is quite strong in terms of her ability to raise test scores, and another one who's particularly strong in terms of her ability to improve the student's behavior in ways not captured by test scores, you would definitely take the latter, that that's gonna be what's most consequential for the student's graduation and uh, success as they enter post-secondary education. And I think this is a, uh, a study that, you know, really raises some important questions about the thrust of teacher evaluation reforms over the past decade which have really focused in a laser-like way on teachers' ability to improve test scores and says that, yes, that's important, but it's maybe not the most important thing that uh, we need to be paying attention to when we're evaluating teachers. Well, it, it uh, validates uh, the, the Harvard Admissions Committee's process. 
the Harvard Admissions Committee definitely does look at the SHE test and, and test scores, but they also look at uh, what your grade point average was in high school and, and uh, how much you apparently learned in high school. And they, they look at your other characteristics that you bring to the table. And so I, I don't think anybody ever believes that test scores are the only thing you should look at. But sometimes the conversation uh, gets bogged down and focused, as you said, a laser beam is, is put on that, a spotlight is put uh, particularly on that. And in the evaluation of teachers, sometimes uh, merit pay plans have been proposed that were exclusively built around test scores. All Although the best ones never were. They always said you got to bring in the principal's observations, other people's observations, and maybe still other student observations in order to get the best evaluation of a teacher. So I think this is an important correction to some of the literature, but I think in some ways it confirms what other people have generally recognized. And there are three articles on the list that focus on higher education. Uh, a relatively new area of coverage for the journal. We have Stephen Idy on the financial struggles facing many private colleges at number 13. Doug Weber analyzing what seems to be behind declining state investment in higher education. And uh, we have Josh Goodman and colleagues looking at Georgia Tech's ambitious effort to put its highly respected master's degree in computer science entirely online at a discounted price that students across the country can take without relocating to Athens, Georgia. Of those three articles, what captured your attention? Well, I love the fact that 10% of all the computer science degrees are being given out by an online uh, uh, provider uh, based in at Georgia Tech. 10% of the computer scientists in the United States turned out in any given year are coming from this one place. This does show the power of online education. I don't know if it's as good as the classroom education, but it certainly is opening up opportunities. And mainly for people who are older, they are not the sort of just out of high school kind of student or even just out of college into a master's degree program. These are students who've been in the workforce but want to uh, develop their skills and uh, online education is going to find a niche out there for sure. It certainly reveals a market that presumably universities were missing for graduate degree programs that don't require students to relocate and technology seems to be making it possible for uh, them to uh, attract these students. Well, it's very hard to hire a professor in computer science because you have to pay a salary that's very high in order to be competitive with what's going on in industry. And so if you can uh, increase the power of any one professor by putting what they have to say up online, it, it can be uh, very beneficial for society as a whole and specifically for uh, certain individuals who take advantage of this opportunity when others are not available. So looking across the list as a whole, Paul, what general conclusions, if any, do you think we can draw? What do we make of 2018 as reflected by the traffic to educationnext.org? Well, it's a very diverse um, set of articles. That's what I have to uh, say. We've got some on uh, the classroom, uh, uh, some on uh, higher education, uh, some on the big policy questions such as the uh, whole court decision, uh, Janus, and what is, impact is this going to have on teacher unions. So I, I walk away with... Uh, uh, being impressed with Education Next for the <laughs> diversity of its portfolio. Well, we won't run out of uh, topics to cover anytime soon. Uh, my guest today has been Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. You can find a blog post with links to all of the articles we discussed on our website at educationnext.org. 
we'd encourage you to check them out as you uh, head into vacation and uh, uh, use them to keep you occupied as you travel. Uh, Paul, thanks for the conversation. Thank you, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.